Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said? When I was yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. I'm sorry. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, um, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until uh, he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head, so to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray together. Almighty God, I come before you tonight and thank you for this time where we can close out our your day in worship, hearing your word, singing your praises and praying in and through the name of Jesus Christ, whose name alone we can come and expect to be heard. I pray that you will bless our time together tonight as we open up your word in this last chapter of Jonah. I ask that you be with us, that you will, what we have not, you will give us, what we are not, you will make us, and what you ask not, what we ask not, you will give us. And we ask that you will do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm sure that perhaps, probably in this past week, uh, perhaps even today, that you've been angry with somebody. For something they said, something they did. It was kind of similar to what we said at the beginning last week, where I imagine that there is, when I asked that you imagine somebody that you didn't really like. Well, some people you may like, but get angry with from time to time. And you can think about, you know, what they say, what they do, uh, and we, we begin to when we get confronted on that, or at least when I've been confronted on my anger towards somebody, or anybody for that matter, uh, one of the things that instantly is confronted with me, are you right to be angry about this? 
I say yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I say yeah because uh, not so much because of uh, the uh, the not so much you know the fact they may have apologized, not so much for the fact that I may have overreacted, uh, which we are wont to do I think sometimes. Very rarely when confronted with being angry with somebody do we say that, you know, I overreacted, I was wrong. We, we tend to like to say, well, you know, they said something to me, they did something to me. Yes, I'm right to be angry. Yes, I, I don't think I need to offer an apology for overreacting. No, they owe me something. Well, at some level, we see that with the apostle, or with the prophet Jonah. Now, as we've charted out this way through the, uh, through the book of Jonah, we've seen how he gets his commission from the Lord and he runs away. We've sort of hinted at different things here and there as to what are his motivating reasons for leaving. Fear. We've got a hint of it in, in his uh, sermon, or at least in our sermon last week, where he says, you know, yet 40 days and you shall uh, be destroyed. So kind of gets maybe a joy of it. But here in this passage tonight, we actually get a reason why he's leave, why he ran. We get a reason for uh, really the deep-seated hatred that Jonah had for the Assyrians. And it's, again, not without understanding, mostly because of, as we've talked about before, how brutal the Assyrian Empire tended to be to its enemies, to its captors, and how it was often seen as like whatever this oppressor nation of mine is getting, they should get it and should get it coming to them soon. And so they're asking for justice then. But God does not give them that. And we see Jonah's response is to something of a lash out in anger, as it were. And it leaves us wondering, you know, what takes a man to, to be so angry and yet feel as though he's right to be so angry, and he unpacks that, and God, of course, at the end of this passage, puts the question to him, are you, are you right to be angry, and should I not have mercy or compassion? Jonah doesn't want the people to know God's mercy or compassion. But we also need to realize something else as well. One of the things that this passage teaches us as far as knowing the mercy of God, extending the mercy of God, we come to realize that God's mercy, as he extends it to our enemies, uh, people we do get angry with for any number of reasons, his mercy is a lot greater than yours and mine. The people that we most strongly believe don't deserve his mercy, get his mercy. And we at one time were the same way. Now, in light of that, we need to understand how this text is teaching us how we are rebuked by God's mercy when we are angry at God's mercy. And that's really getting us to the heart of the text. We are rebuked by God's mercy when we are angry at God's mercy. Now, I want to unpack that in two different ways. First of all, the anger at God's mercy. And then second, the rebuke by God's mercy. Now, again, as we are rebuked by God's mercy, we see in verses 1 to 4 that I struggled to get through. Uh, to go back a little bit to one verse into chapter 3, it says, When God saw what they did, 
in other words, their repentance, the, the, the Ninevites, the, the Ninevites' repentance. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster of what that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The, the, the language of the text sort of gets you to a level that it's like it's, it's a seething anger. It's like it says he was angry, angry, or he was angry, angry, angry. Like he was just, he was, he was very angry. It's like he's foaming at the mouth. Uh, there have been times in my life where I've been angry in that way. I'm sure many of us have been as well. And we know the feeling. It's just like a blind rage or it's a blind fury. And then at some level we, we were able to take a step back and we're able to, to pause for a minute and say, man, I overreacted. But at least for Jonah, he's, he's going full tilt. I mean, he is just fuming. He's saying, I cannot believe God did this. Well, I mean, I can't believe God did this because of what he says in verse 2. He says, oh Lord, he prayed to the Lord. He calls on God's covenant name. One of only two times he's done that other than in chapter 2. He says, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? What did he say? I knew, that is why I made haste to Tarshish. For, I, for this is what he knew. I knew you were a gracious God. I know that you're a merciful God. I know that you are slow to anger. And I know that you're abounding in steadfast love. And I know you relent from disaster. We've been dancing around it throughout the entirety of this series. But Jonah is answering very directly here. Using actually a passage from Exodus 34. Which I'll get to in a moment. Jonah's basically saying in this passage, I know you're merciful, and I didn't want you to be. I know you're gracious, I didn't want you to be. I know that you have steadfast love, you have covenant love in which that you set upon Israel, and now you're setting it upon these Gentiles. And I didn't want you to do that. He's saying that I know that you are want to relent from disaster. I know that you can stay your wrath at any point. And I did not want you to do that. In that passage in Exodus chapter 34, uh, in verses 6 to 7, Jonah is actually quoting the first half of that verse. He's quoting that first half of that verse where it does say that God is gracious and loving about... But the other thing that he says in that passage, or that Moses says rather in that passage, is how the Lord also visits the iniquity of the son of generations to the third and the fourth generation. He says that I will get justice. And Jonah is essentially saying, you know, I know these things, and yet I wanted you to do that. I, did, I, I, I knew that you were going to forgive them, and I did not want you to. I wanted you to do what you said you would do in that same passage in Exodus and give them justice. I wanted you not to have mercy on them, but I knew you would anyway. Jonah is un not unclear here. When I was a kid, whenever my parent, whenever I'd be battling with my siblings about who got control of the TV or who got control of the PlayStation or who got control of this or who got control of that, Richard, this doesn't happen in your household, does it? Uh, you get to a 
I almost feel bad for my parents because they get to a point where it's like, you know, one way or the other, whoever, whichever direction I go, I'm going to make one of them mad. <laughs> I'm going to make one of them mad. And, and, but it's to, it's to do what's right. It's to give people, it's to give the kid, you know, if the kid started playing with this toy or that thing first, you know, want them to finish it, you know, enjoy it, and then you can enjoy it. Or you can do it, or you can uh, participate with them and enjoy the same thing with them. If they're watching a show you don't like, well, enjoy it with them for a second. They're your siblings. Love them. Jonah, A, Jonah isn't doing that. He's not rejoicing in the Lord's mercy, but he, he's certainly furious at the fact that he's just not getting his way. And that anger, that foaming anger in Jonah's mind and Jonah's heart leads him to what he says here in verse 3. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, I don't know if you've ever been that angry that you would rather just stop living. But that's where Jonah's taking it. Jonah's fury has taken him. He is so against the Ninevites knowing God's mercy, Gentiles, as it were, being grafted back in, that he would rather just his life end tomorrow because he does not want to see it. He does not want to... He, he, he knows that it's going to happen, but he doesn't want to see it. He doesn't want to see... These, these people live another day. He wanted, in fact, he, if it were up to Jonah probably, they would have been gone yesterday. And again, you got to understand somewhere where he's coming from. I mean, just in a few years, they're going to gouge out the eyes of, the, of one of their kings and lead them off into, into slavery. Or at least the, the Babylonians do. They're not on the best of terms. And so he wants them gone. It's like seeing a it's like seeing a, a, a bug on your uh, on your uh, on your floor or something. You wanted it gone yesterday. You really wouldn't have wanted to see it then, but you would at least want to see it gone now. And that's how Jonah's viewing them. The covenant promises belong to Israel and Israel only. They do not belong to Gentiles, and they certainly don't belong to the Ninevites. Thank God, don't you know how bad these people are? Don't you know how unworthy and unholy and ungracious and unloving they are? How they've killed and made a mockery of your prophets and your God and your name and your people? Don't you know that? Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to see any. I don't want to have any part of it. I don't want to see it. I'd rather die. Sometimes that sort of blind fury of not wanting the Gentiles to come in to know the mercy of God manifests itself in our lives in this way. There are people who have different social, economic, indeed political beliefs from you and me. And they're going to abound until Jesus comes. At least I, the last time I checked they would. In our very polarized age right now, 
it's easy to look at somebody who disagrees with us on probably very fundamental issues and say, you can't be Christian. You most likely are not a Christian. And I'm not even saying that in many cases that they necessarily are. I'm just saying that the, the point that I'm trying to make is that there are people in our lives who have different beliefs than we do. And yet at the same time, we have to be able to will and willing to extend the same mercy of God to them and saying, you know, look, you may believe differently than I do, but you're still my brother and sister and we can walk in the spirit of unity. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that there are fundamental issues that we don't disagree about. And no doubt, at least as far as the Ninevites are concerned, they had ample disagreements. But our anger and our disagreements can't get ourselves to the point where we can say, you know, I, I just I don't want you to have anything to do with the mercy of God. I don't want you to know the mercy of God. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. As a, it, it belongs to all of us who believe like me. That's not how God is. That's not how Christ is. And that's not how we ought to be either. Because the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross and he extended mercy to those who we would not ordinarily extend mercy to. He loved the world in its sorry and sinful state enough to shed his own blood. And if he can do that, then we can do the same to those around us and about us who have serious disagreements with us on anything. And by God's grace, especially if they're not believers, as we live and give a witness and a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ, we ourselves can hopefully and prayerfully see them come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't, it's, it's not about being combative. We have to be gentle and lowly and merciful and gracious. God says, the, the Bible says here that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting of disaster. When we are dealing with people who, dis who are in completely different worldviews, as it were, from you and I, we must be willing to extend the same to them and show the same grace, show the same mercy to them. We can't let our anger about what they say, do, or think, or believe lead us to what Jonah says, just fuming at the mouth and saying, I would just rather die than see that. Now, we wouldn't say that in that way. But the anger can't, and the frustration and the anger of what they say and do and believe can't lead us to that point of foaming anger to where we can at least say, I don't want them to know the mercy of God. The mercy of God is not open to them. It's open to me and nobody else. We can't be in that way and frame and walk with the Lord in a consistent way. But as Jonah continues on through this passage, his anger of the, at the mercy of God is very apparent. But so is the fact that he's rebuked by God's anger as well. Now, there are a number of things that we can see here, and I'll read this text again, at least for the first few verses. In verse 5, it says, where, as we begin to unpack how he was rebuked by God's mercy, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what, the, what would become of the city. In Jonah's mind, here in this by this point in the in this in the chapter, he's at a point right now where he's like, you know, well, 
maybe God will come along and see things my way. Maybe He'll see things my way. And I, and I want to get as clear out of the city as quickly as I can. And I just want to see exactly what he'll do. Because at least in Jonah's mind, at least the way he preached the passage earlier in chapter 3, which, as we saw, he says, yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. He's, he's essentially wanting to see if his prophecy is going to come to fruition. Now that's a big mistake right there. Because in the Old Testament, in the uh, Decalogue, there was a... Uh, er, not, not the Decalogue. In the Old Testament, in one of the books of Moses... Uh, there was a passage at which there is, uh, it, it says of false prophets that if they give a prophecy and their prophecy doesn't come true, they're false prophets and they must be put to death. Now what is that saying about Jonah? Is Jonah a false prophet? That seems to be raised by the text. It seems to be raised by the text because he preached a message where he said, and yet 40 days they shall die. That's probably one of the main reasons why he left to begin with. Why he went out of the city to see if it would happen. And to see it not, as the text continues to unfold, leaves us more and more with that, uh, gets, gets us more and more into that psychology that Jonah is going through with his anger. Now am I a false prophet? And of course that question is not answered, but it does lead one to speculate. He went out in order that they might be able, he might be able to see some destruction. He might be able to see some fireworks, as it were. Now, Jonah, obviously that doesn't end up happening by the end of the passage. But as Jonah goes out, it says here in verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And know what he says here in verse 7. And then verse 8. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, It is better for me to live, or it is better for me to die than to live. So again, we come full circle here. Jonah sent out into the middle of the desert. Have you ever been in one of those moments in your life where, where you're out working in the garden or you're doing anything, any sort of work and the, and the sun's beating down on your head and you're just like, man, what it wouldn't be for a cool drink, what it wouldn't be for a shade. That's exactly what's going on here, at least in Jonah's mind, when the, the, the plant comes up. Now, I mean, I was reading some commentators where they were trying to speculate over, you know, what kind of plant it was because, I mean, it had to be some sort of special plant to be able to, to sprout up and grow one day and be gone the next. But, at this, I mean, because like worms eat, eat plants all the time, and yet we don't see our trees go, go by the wayside either. Now again, it's not that important, but it's an object lesson that we're going to get, that we get to here in the next few verses. Jonah is exhibiting that he's more concerned about himself. He's more concerned about the status of the tree. He's more concerned about being able to, to watch what the Lord is going to do in Nineveh. Of course, not revival. He's more concerned about himself. So he preaches a message of which, by all accounts, is not a true message. And he doesn't get, he doesn't get smote and 
snake stritten. Uh, I'm getting tongue tied here. He doesn't get smoked down right there in the minute that he does it. Instead, the Lord allows him to go out of the city and to watch destruction. And he comes back to what he says here, doesn't he? It's better for me to live than to die. And that's when God get, and that's when things get real, real profound here for Jonah. If you remember back in verse four, God asks him. Do you do well to be angry? Nothing. Not a thing. He just It's almost as if Jonah doesn't hear it, or at least if he did hear it, he's just like, you know, whatever. Uh, as, te as teenagers are wont to do as well, Richard. And so, he just completely blows it off, and yet here we go, we get to the question, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Now, understand what God is asking him here. He's not asking him for it. Now, now, is it right for you to be angry? Is this a correct response? No, he's asking Jonah, is his anger justified? He's asking Jonah, is his anger justified? Is your anger so justified that you are so unwilling to let the, to let the people know the mercy of God and know the grace of God that they might hear your preaching and that they may believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your anger right to where you see this entire city of people and you want nothing to do with them for their lives, physical or spiritual? Are you that uncaring? Are you correct? Are you justified to be so angry? He asked him that question previously and Jonah didn't answer it. And yet here he asks him the same thing. Are you justified to be so angry? And almost it's almost as if in the language it's like a burst forth in angry Yes, I am angry. Yes, I am right to be angry. Yes, I am justified in being angry. Angry enough to where I don't even want to see I don't want to see you anymore. I don't want to see you. I don't want to see your works. I don't want to see your wrath. I don't want to see none of it. In fact, it's almost as if Jonah would it's almost as if you 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 think that having done this, Jonah would be like, you know, I would almost wish you left me in the belly of the fish. I would rather have done that than have witnessed this. And yet, note what the Lord says to it. In verse 10, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in, in the night. And yet, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. You are so, con he's basically saying, Jonah, you are so concerned about your life and your well-being. You are so worried about Israel, and you're so worried about your covenant promises. You're so worried about all of these things, and yet there are 120,000 people over here. There are 120,000 people over here, men, women, children, who don't, know, who don't know my covenant promises, who've never heard my name, and at least insofar as they've had, they've only reviled it. My plans and my purposes have been since the beginning to bring the Gentiles in the fold. He made that promise to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through you and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That seed, as Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 3, for example, was not 
many seeds, not many children, but through the one seed, through the one Lord Jesus Christ. And insofar as the Lord Jesus is brought into the, is sent into the world to die on the cross that with, by which the whole world may be redeemed, may be reconciled to God, we who were once alienated from him are now made sons of glory and made sons of, of light and taken out of darkness into his glorious light. My promise has been to do that since the beginning. And my promise, my mercy, and my grace will be, my steadfast love will be extended to the Ninevites, yes, even now. I know their, their works are imperfect. I know their repentance was imperfect. I know how brutal they are. I mean, I'm, I'm the omniscient covenant Lord, Lord of Israel. I'm not confined to Israel. I know all of this. And yet, how are you to tell me that I should not have pity, not should have compassion on people who he compares in verse 11, he says, who don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know anything. They know nothing. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's almost as if you're, you're looking at an infant. I mean, like you bring a kid in, uh, who's like a year old or two years old in a stroller or in a, or in a, uh, uh, hand carrier and like, their lives are completely dependent on you. I mean, by all accounts, I mean, like, <clears throat> kids like that age don't really know what's going on. And yet, that's something of like what's going on with, Gen with the Ninevites. They have no clue. They have no inkling of an idea of what's going on about them. They don't know the first thing about the, about uh, Israel, or at least about, you know, you talk about the Lord being slow to wrath, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, and all of those things, relenting of disaster. You say you know all of those things, and yet they don't know it. And how should I not have compity? If I am those things, and He is, how should I not have compity? Uh, compassion or pity on the people of Nineveh. 120,000, perhaps men, women, and children. You would rather watch them go up in flames? Are you kidding me? Now, a number of things can be drawn from here. A, on the one hand, when we're when we're angry at the Lord, I mean, you know, He tells us to be angry and sin not, and as you and I both know, that that is very difficult to do. Uh, because it, it's, it, it seems as though it's almost an impossible standard. So while we ought not to, to do that, or at least we ought to be so willing to watch how we are angry and responding to the Lord's mercy, it does also, Jonah is also getting at something a little more fundamental to here as well as far as Jonah is concerned, but also as the people of God are concerned. Insofar as we are concerned with sound theology, what goes on in the walls of a church, or the walls in our general assembly, or in our presbyteries, or anything like that, where we are more concerned about the bickering and the fighting and the political maneuvering and all of that stuff that comes with church politics and life. 
if we're more concerned about that than we are the people around us, what is that saying? Now, the Lord has a great deal of mercy and compassion upon the people of Nineveh, and he has a lot of mercy and compassion upon the world so as to send his son into the world to condemn the world. And for each and every one of us, where we get more concerned about what is comfortable and easy for us, and there are 120,000, 120 million, 7 billion people in the world, and most of them don't know the Lord. We may not say it with our words, but our actions do speak louder than words. It begins to take us to a point where loving our neighbor, loving the Assyrians, can be just as simple as inviting them to church. It doesn't have to be elaborate or programmatic. Evangelism doesn't have to be elaborate or programmatic. It can be just as simple as inviting people to church, praying for people, having the same, extending the same mercy and compassion to them as our Lord does to you. And the Lord is asking you, by leaving, by not going any farther, because he does end with a question, and it almost seems as though there's a standoff between Jonah and the Lord in this passage here. Because, I mean, as, as you notice, it, he leaves him with a question and it doesn't go any farther. The question, I, I make that point because the question that the author is leaving us with, is leaving the reader with, is the same that he had that the Lord left with Jonah. It's the same question that he leaves with you. You pity the plant, and you didn't labor it. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. I almost thought about applying this in such a way as it relates to the church. You pity the church for which you did not labor, and you did not make it grow. In the span of human history, it's here today. And it's gone tomorrow. Friends, we have to be concerned about the world. We have to be concerned about our neighbors. We have to set our distinctions aside a little bit. And love the world enough, as Jesus Christ did, to have the mercy and compassion that he does in dying on the cross for you and for me and dying on the cross for the world for those who believe Tim Keller in his uh, book The Prodigal Prophet that I read in preparation for this sermon not, that's not the only thing I read um, highlights it this way that Jesus Christ is very much the prophet that Jonah infinitely more the prophet than Jonah was. And that he had pity on the world. He didn't go outside of the city to watch God pour hell on it. He went out of the city that his blood may be poured, that his blood may be shed, and that wrath may be poured on them. 
And by identifying and uniting ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, I can only tell you that it, it, we're following a prophet who did not leave the city and leave us swallowing. He didn't leave us in a place where we are weeping and gnashing our teeth. He leaves us in a place where the wrath of God is poured out on him so that as he went out, we may come in. Now, one final note. I never actually mentioned the uh, author of the book. It's funny. You, don't, you get to the end of a sermon series and you don't mention the author of the book. <laughs> the reason I didn't do that is because the end of the question where the Lord says what he says, you have to imagine that the author was Jonah. Why didn't Jonah respond, after all? He didn't respond, most likely, because it's not because merely that he um, would have lashed out again. You might have expect that, given that he lashed out at the Lord to begin with. But you have to imagine Jonah is not responding because he has the response of what a fool I've been. Lord, you're right. I did have more pity on this tree than I did on 120,000 people. I had more concern about my well-being than I did about um, these people. I didn't trust you to be with me. Everywhere I was going. Even in crying out to you in the belly of the fish. In some way I was still serving myself. I was a fool. I was wrong. Forgive me. Would you respond in the same way? We fail the Lord all the time. When we're angry with somebody, or when we're angry with the Lord, and His mercy rebukes us, do we say something like, Lord, forgive me, I was wrong? We have too much pride for that. But Jonah shows us what it is to do. Sometimes it's best that when the Lord speaks in His thunderous way, it's best not to say anything. But at least in your heart of hearts to admit, when I'm angry at the Lord for His providence and for His goodness, I'm wrong. Because all of His providences are good. His mercy is sure. Who He, he will have mercy upon whom He will have mercy and He will have compassion upon whom He will have compassion. And he can extend that mercy to people without distinction to whether or not they're Israelites, Ninevites, Syrians, Babylonians. Neither should you. But he gives you the grace all the more through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Our God in heaven, we come before you and thank you and pray for your name that you may teach us more mercy, that we may have more mercy. And I pray, O Christ, that we may love the world even as you have loved the world in sending your Son to die on the cross for a sinner, yes, like even me. We ask that in this knowledge and wisdom we may go before you, we go before you and walk before you in this world in your wisdom before those who are without. And we ask all these things in Christ's most precious name. Amen.